Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski talk about gender and watches, Hodinkee, and a new sustainability certification for diamonds. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from rainy Los Angeles. You heard that right? And I'm with... It's Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and JCK Online. It's mid-March, and by the time people are listening to this, we'll have had daylight savings, which I feel like already a quarter of the year is nearly down. I don't know how that happened. And it's been one year of COVID. One year of the quarantine lifestyle. I've hit a stride. (laughs) I really hate it, but I'm kind of used to it. Yeah. Well, I'm just glad we didn't know then what we know now. I think it would have been hard to move forward. But, you know, I think we'd also be surprised at how well people have adapted. We've talked all year about people's resilience and their ability to act on the fly and reorganize and and also how well jewelry has done, how surprisingly well it's done in light of everybody being stuck at home and and searching for these gifts of meaning and value. So assuming the stimulus uh, does what people expect and, you know, this should be a very good year Probably the only trend is that this stimulus is kind of geared more towards the middle class. So it should perhaps be a different kind of customer coming in than has been spending in the past. You know, we'll we'll have to see. Uh, it's I, I think this is going to be, it's definitely shaping up to be a good year. That said, you don't want to jinx it. Yeah, well, so all that's good. And, and another thing, of course, that I think about in March is that we're in the midst of Women's History Month and we just yes. celebrated. International Women's Day. Right. You know, it's kind of interesting to see how many companies and how many different organizations put together events and podcasts and initiatives. Yeah, a lot of a lot of companies do some great things. And I read a very compelling article in the New York Times about women's watches and how there used to be this thing that here's a men's watch and here's a woman's watch, and now it's more uh, unisex. And I believe that was written by yourself. I believe it was. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction, Rob. Yes. So I did a piece for the New York Times that ran on International Women's Day, March 8th. Let me back it up and tell you that a year ago for the same section. So I write for these luxury sections in the Times and they all have themes. And the one that runs in March, it's themed around women. And so a year ago, I decided I was going to profile a handful of female watch collectors. And it was really interesting because what I found is I found these women that were incredibly astute, knowledgeable experts. I mean, they knew what they were talking about. They'd had a passion for watches for many years. And almost all of them gravitated to styles that would traditionally be described as men's pieces. You know, they didn't have diamonds on them. They weren't dainty. They were just watches that these women loved. One woman was especially fond of vintage watches and came right out and said, I don't like ladies' watches you know, especially in the vintage realm, because they were always super small in that, you know, diamond set and very elegant. And, you know, she gravitated to sort of chunkier pieces that she felt like they looked good on her wrist. Well, one of the women I spoke to, Kathleen McGivney, those of our listeners who are familiar with Red Bar will know her because she's the CEO of this very, very well-known, well-established watch collectors group that has chapters all over the world called Red Bar. And she gave me this amazing quote that I used up front. This is in the article a year ago. There are dive watches, dress watches, watches inspired by automotive things and pilot's watches. But then there's a category called women's. Women are not a monolithic she-mystery that all want the same thing. I think the industry misses that. 
which I thought was great and super hit the point. And so this is a topic that's been bubbling. People have been talking about it. You know, plenty of women out there in the world collect watches and, you know, they're frustrated to go online to a site and they'll see all these different categories. And then there's this one for women, you know, and it's like, well, what do you mean? You don't go to a car dealership and you're not pointed over to the ladies car section. And so starting in January and building in February, this subject got a lot of airtime, playtime, reading time. An editor at Hodinkee, Cara Barrett, published a really well-circulated piece making the argument that all watches should be unisex, and here's why. And tons of comments, like well over 500 comments on the Hodinkee site, another additional, I think, nearly 600 on the Instagram post. And by the way, my piece was assigned the night before Cara's piece was published. So Something in the zeitgeist. There's another vlogger, a YouTuber in Germany that goes by the name Jenny L. And she put together in January a really fascinating video, I guess almost like a polemic, but in video form, talking about the ways that the Swiss industry is marketed to women. And he, you know, basically, this is why women don't like watches. And that was her thesis. So again, it's like this topic that's been refracted and commented on in all these different ways of late. And so I felt like my article was just kind of looking at the fact that this conversation is reaching a boiling point. And one of the other ways it, it's come up is the same time that Kara publishes her piece on Hodinkee, this new group pops up called Watch Femme, F-E-M-M-E. It's sort of a play on Watch Fam or Family, but it's a female-centric group. And Suzanne Wong, who's the editor of World Tempest, a watch website in Geneva, and Leticia Hershey, who's a well-known watch publicist, runs her own PR firm called Caviar PR. They independently decided to team up and kind of create Watch Femme, this female-centric community online. And they started doing chats on Clubhouse, the new social media app. So I joined the first one, and it was on this very topic, again, of, you know, what is a woman's watch? And Suzanne put it as bluntly as I can think of, and it was really a wonderful way. Well, what is a woman's watch? It's a watch owned and worn by a woman. And it seems so basic and so obvious when you break it down like that. But, you know, I still get on the regular emails in my inbox from watchmakers saying, our new ladies collection. And inevitably, it's diamond set or gem set. And it's usually quite small. It, it just feels like its own entity, this category that's always just been labeled women's watches. And I think as we further move into this world where gender is fluid and non-binary, and more and more people gravitate to styles and aesthetics that are both masculine and feminine or either or, that it just becomes insanely outdated to discuss watches as gendered products. Yeah. When you look at, because obviously my perception of watches is mostly as a male product, whether that's fair or not, I don't know. Would you say it's 50-50 it's as far as market share? That's a really good question. I think it really varies by brand quite a bit. You know, certain brands like Breitling, you know, they're primarily a masculine timepiece maker. Right. Other brands like Cartier have a vast range of pieces. So it, it does matter a bit on kind of the heritage of that brand and what its legacy is in terms of producing those watches. But, you know, over the last 20 years, tons of watchmakers just saw an opportunity. They'd largely been focused on the male market and they began producing these ladies collections. And I still, even when I say the word ladies, it feels so 1950s, you know, it feels like a different era entirely. 
Yeah, and as your article points out, the Apple Watch, which, like it or not, is one of the most popular watches out there, is neither male nor female. It is just the Apple Watch. Exactly. It's entirely gender-free. One of the reasons the conversation has come up at the beginning here of 2021 in such a forceful way that people can't really ignore it anymore is that, you know, over the last year, there's just been so much time for people to converge on social media, to have these kinds of discussions Obviously, questions of equity and social equality and what your positioning is in terms of these social movements dominated the conversation last year. And so I think people have had time to sort of marinate on these things and to think about them. And and a lot of female collectors are out there saying, you know, I'm on these online groups and I'm on these chats and everything's just so skewed to the world of men. And it's just about time that women have their say. It feels late in the game. I mean, I'm surprised we're having it now and we didn't have this conversation five years ago, but, you know, it's an older trade, a conservative trade, and it takes some time to change these things. Well, one one thing I've noticed, and, you know, a lot of the traditional watch advertising, you, you know, you go online and you see, for lack of a better word, it's, you know, it's very kind of um, macho, right? It's all about like mm-hmm. race car driving and skiing and, you know, sports. And obviously women can love all those things, but it definitely seems to be very male oriented as far as the kind of imagery that they go for and the kind of, you know, message they put across about like go beyond your limits and stuff like that. Well, you know, what's interesting, and I never really thought about this until I watched Jenny L's YouTube video on it. She goes through all these ads that are targeted at women. And you see these celebrities provocatively dressed, tight clothes, kind of coyly looking at the camera, showing off her watch. And that's geared to women versus the ads with men. And the men are out skiing and they're climbing mountains and they're using those watches as tools. It's not just an accessory and adornment. So again, it's back to the way the Swiss talk to women. They don't show women using these watches. It's just this pretty thing that, you know, pretties up the picture and helps a woman be more seductive or sexy. And that's the message women get, which is why then when you're just looking for a watch because you're like, I'm going to go on a diving vacation next week and I want a cool watch to accompany, you don't really see that imagery out there. You don't see, you know, the industry talking to you as a, you know, a real customer. I think the subtext is look better for a man. Mm -hmm. And the other very intriguing uh, watch news is that Houdinki, the watch information site, it's been around, I think, like 10 years at this point bought Crown and Caliber, the secondhand watch site. And to me, that's very interesting as a, you know, as a journalist and a writer and a reporter that, you know, something that starts off as an information site can kind of all of a sudden become this commercial venture, you know, basically by a, a, a e-tailer. Yeah, because that's essentially what they are, I think, even more so today than a information source. I mean, but that, that e-commerce... I don't know actually when they launched their Houdinki shop, but they've been selling watches and been an authorized retailer for numerous brands for a while now and really big brands. I mean, I'm talking about Vacheron, Constantin, and a ton of luxury brands as well as more affordable. And, you know, recently, I don't know if you know, they also got a new CEO and he's from Mr. Porter, the men's style site that affiliated with Net-A-Porter and the Ukes group. Toby Bateman, and he's based in London and obviously overseeing this this new strategy of becoming a mega force. I mean, they also launched an, an insurance program last September. It, it really, I think, is now a one-stop shop for all the things you might need in the world of watches. 
If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now, back to the show. Here, here's the question I have. You know, there's so many of these secondhand watch sites, it seems, right? And I think everybody agrees it's a really good business. There's so many secondhand watch sites like uh, Chrono24. There was Watchfinder. It was bought by Richemont. The question is, like, is there too many of these? And how many can the market stand? I don't know. I mean, I don't know the the ins and outs of how those businesses are performing. I think the market can stand a lot. I think the kind of more interesting question is is when the jewelry space will follow suit. Because at this point, we have first dibs, we have the real, real, but not that many. And I've seen a few bubblings of sites coming into my inbox, but that's to me, like the still uncharted territory is when we're going to see that play out in jewelry. Well, for, for a long time, there was a definite vogue to secondhand diamond sites. And I mean, most of those are still around. I guess the issue with luxury in general is that you do, it does have to be authenticated. And that's something that Real Real has had uh, some people uh, called them out that not everything was uh, 100% authenticated on there. Yeah, obviously these pre-owned watch dealers have some mechanisms in place or else they'd be sued right and left for selling these Frankenstein watches. So, you know, they employ watchmakers. They have some sort of vetting process. Maybe it's even relationships with brands that can certify some of these things. I'll leave it to the entrepreneurs to figure out, but I imagine at some point we'll start seeing more of those sites popping up because in the world of, you know, like a circular economy and recycling and reusing, you know, this is just makes perfect sense. Not that the Cartiers and Tiffany's of the world for that matter want to hear this, but why go out to these stores when I can buy their perfectly beautiful, lovingly, gently pre-owned pieces through this other dealer? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, getting back to the certification issue, I mean, you notice that like eBay is now getting very much into certification because it doesn't want to be a kind of haven for counterfeit watches. And yeah, it does go along with the whole idea of sustainability, of recycling, that we don't necessarily need to to make everything new, that there's plenty out there that, you know, we all have stuff. And obviously the best of these sites, you know, connect the person who's looking for something with the person who has something. Yeah. I mean, it does seem like a way forward. I think a lot of retailers have already discovered this in just offering an estate business or having estate showcases. You know, I wanted to ask you, we we touched on obviously sustainability and, and so on, and such a topic in the world of lab-grown diamonds, and you just covered it in a really interesting way or a fresh new angle on that sustainability conversation when it comes to lab-grown diamonds. Do you want to tell us about it? Yeah, so it's actually been broadened from lab-grown diamonds to all sorts of diamonds, which I'll talk about in a second. But this started about two years ago, I think it was. You know, the FTC started cracking down on companies saying, you know, you can't just say a lab-grown diamond is sustainable just because it's lab-grown, you know. And they particularly didn't like the word eco-friendly, which is kind of, from their perspective, it's the kind of word that, as our friend Bill Furman used to say, it means everything and nothing. When you say eco-friendly, like, what does that mean? You know, some of these lab-grown diamonds are made with, you know, coal power and tons of methane. And I mean, you know, they're, they're harming the environment, even if it's not as much as a mine diamond, which is, you know, arguable. 
if you have people who are concerned about the environment and you sell them something that's actually harming the environment. So anyway, so the FTC kind of cracked down on that language and this group, the Lab Grown Diamond Council that was being formed by Chris Casey and Michael Barler, and I'm not exactly sure what's happening with it right now, but got this uh, organization, SES Global Systems, which has done a lot of work in the jewelry industry. They work for RJC and they work for Free and Earth. And they've also done like sustainable seafood and sustainable wood and sustainable lumber. So they kind of enlisted them to say, okay, what would it take to really call yourself eco-friendly? Give us a series of criteria. At least if we say, okay, this is sustainable, this is what it means. And eventually they broadened it out so that now, you know, any kind of diamond company can can apply. So it can be lab grown company. It could be a mine diamond company. Apparently the mine diamond companies are not that interested at this point, but it's possible at some point they will recycle diamonds. And it's basically developing criteria saying this is what you need, right? This is what you should have. This is what you should do. And, you know, you can argue or, you know, say this is strong or this is weak, whatever, but at least it's a series of criteria that you can be measured against that's objective, that involves transparency. I mean, one of the big issues is that we still don't know how much electricity these things take, these things use. I mean, there's all sorts of numbers being thrown around. There's no real data there. So the the idea is that these companies would be supplying data to SES and they would be audited against a specific standard, which involves what they call climate neutrality. I think it's good and uh, it's good for the lab-grown industry because right now the lab-grown industry, I mean, prices are still going down. It's kind of been this race to the bottom. So it'll be a way of, to set certain brands apart. And I think it's overall positive. You know, I, I've been looking at lab-grown diamond brands. A lot of them are D2C, direct-to-consumer brands over the last few weeks, and they all tout eco-conscious, sustainable, ethical. I mean, that language is on every single one of them. And I wonder if at some point it's just going to be so expected that we won't even need to hear it anymore or that it's so obvious that that language is there, it'll just start to lose any meaning. I think the, the issue is that in a way it doesn't have meaning some of them are more genuinely eco-conscious than others, right? Some of them have been certified, some of them not. The issue is, can you back it up? Like, what does that mean to people? Like, if I say that, what am I guaranteeing? What am I saying? Yeah, I know a lot of people who speak in these airy kind of platitudes, and I always get angry because I'd be like, what do you actually mean? And I think when marketing ventures into this area where it just uses words that sound nice and feel buzzy, like disruptive, mind you, another word we hear a lot about that actually means nothing anymore, people have to step back and say, no, 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 I can't just hear these buzzy words and take you at your word because you're not saying anything. There's a new consciousness out there. And this is an extremely nascent market. You know that better than anyone. And people are learning, learning from the mistakes of others, learning, you know, keeping their eyes focused and understanding that consumers are discerning, they're smart, and eventually they'll see through the bull. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Olivia Briley. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.